Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, Raider Nation, and welcome to another edition of the Believe in Raiders podcast, Believe Podcast Network. I'm Dennis Ackerman, pleased to be joined by my partner and co-host Stanford Route in Stanford. The draft just wrapped up over the weekend. What's your initial thoughts on the Raiders class? I think that, number one, uh, everybody already, already has their own take. They already have their own synopsis over the Raiders picks. Looking at it from the macro they went ahead, they attacked the offensive line, they attacked the trenches, they attacked the DBs, the safeties, the corners, people like that, and they also picked up an outside linebacker. So from the macro, I don't have much of an issue with the positions that they targeted because that's what they needed the most. So from that standpoint, I don't see a huge problem. I don't have any monstrous misgivings with their selections or what they attack in the draft to go ahead and address. All right, so let's recap their draft. Their first pick was Alex Leatherwood, offensive tackle out of Alabama. They took him in round one, pick number 17. Trayvon Merrick, a safety out of TCU, round two, pick number 43. Malcolm Kuntz, a defensive end out of Buffalo, round three. Also in round three was Divine Diablo, linebacker slash safety out of Virginia Tech. And in the fourth round, they grabbed a safety, Tyree Gillespie. In the fifth round, out of Illinois as a corner, Nate Hobbs, and then Jimmy Morrissey, a center in the seventh round. Pick number 230, and you just kind of touched on this, Stanford. I think one thing we can agree on is the Raiders drafted what they needed to in the offensive line and the defense. And while they certainly drafted for those needs, the question remains, did they make the right choices? Here's what GM Mike Mayock had to say about the class. Uh, I think it's a combination of both. Uh... You know, I, I think we did want to address uh, the offensive line. I think we've done it consistently uh, since making some moves in the offseason. Really happy with Leatherwood. Uh, the kid we got in the seventh round is awesome, uh, Morrissey. I mean, he was a walk-on at Pitt that ended up starting for four years, being a two-time captain. The senior bowl called him the day before the game. He flew in and played most of the game at center and guard. Uh, he's just one of those overachievers, you know, I, I, he won the same award that Hunter Renfro won a couple of years ago as the top former walk-on in the country. So we love the two offensive linemen. Uh, I told you guys last night, we knew we had to get better on defense and I thought the board matched up with what we needed to do. Um, I thought one interesting note today was we had no, in- I, I had no intention of going here today. We had no intention of, of trying to get Tyree Gillespie, but, at a certain point, he stood out like a sore thumb on our board. And uh, again, it wasn't about need. It was about what we thought was a really 
good football player available much later than we thought he'd be available. So we traded up and got Gillespie. Uh, so we're really excited about that. But that's a long way to say, yeah, I think we knew we had to address our defense. We had to do it on all three levels. We're happy we were able to. And we also augmented that young offensive line some more. So uh, very happy with the way it unfolded. Stanford, I hate draft grades. I mean, there's no way we're going to know about this class till probably at the earliest three years down the line. I see all these pundits handing out grades for all these teams. I think it's an absolute joke. Uh, give me your overall thoughts on uh, what the Raiders did. I don't have any problems with it because they attacked the positions. They attacked the places of need that they that, that were highest on the list. I don't have any issues with it. Everybody wants to go ahead and poo-poo the, the draft of Alex Leatherwood. He plays offensive tackle. That is something that the Raiders needed to go ahead and address in the draft. They didn't do it in free agency. And, oh, yeah, by the way, if I'm going to draft a player blindly, I'm going to go ahead and think that, you know what, someone coached by Nick Saban, someone from that program, probably knows a thing or two about the game of football. So they may not be Panay Sewell. They may not be uh, Slater from uh, from Northwestern. But you know what? They were playing for the Crimson Tide. You know what? They know a thing or two. So why don't I just go ahead, shut the hell up, let the go ahead, let the process play out, and then we'll look at this in 2024 and see whether it was a bust or was a reach, things like that. I think that when you go down the list, you look at the Trayvon Mulrig, from the safety out of TCU. I liked him a lot watching him play as a college football player for the Horn Frogs. Then you got Malcolm Coons, outside linebacker. Whenever you're picking at round number three, it's going to be very difficult to go ahead and pick somebody who's a surefire impact player in round three. At the end of the day, it's still a crapshoot. And when you get deeper in the rounds, it becomes even more of a crapshoot. So then you go, you look at uh, Diablo, safety, Virginia Tech. Retake always has a good defense. As you can see, Caleb Ferry going in the first round. So many players coming out of VTech that are products of that system, of that scheme. So I don't have any problems with those picks. Then we'll look at Tyree Gillespie. You know what? Safety, somebody who's not exactly highly heralded because he was taken in the fourth round. But you know what? He plays in the SEC. He's playing in the best conference in college football. So just off of that alone, he's going to be used to the speed of things. He's going to be used to the athleticism, things like that. You got Nate Hobbs, corner out of Illinois, taken in the fifth round. Big Ten uh, conference. That's not a slouch either. So I'm going to go ahead and just reserve my aspersions until later on 2023 2024 let these guys go ahead and develop a little bit and then you got the center out of pittsburgh once again that's the acc once again that's still football being played in that conference he's going against the virginia techs he's going against the miamis the florida states the clemsons so he's going to be used to the speed of the game he's going to be used to things like that used to the physicality it's going to be much easier for him to go ahead and translate over and not be completely overblown have that huge steep learning curve coming from let's say a smaller conference a conference that doesn't necessarily have a lot of power five or should i say players who are going to be playing at the next level so i think once again it's very easy to overanalyze this draft class by the Las Vegas Raiders. It's very easy. And by the way, like I said, Mel Kuyper, sometimes he's right. Sometimes Mel Kuyper is wrong. Mel Kuyper is not uh, the, the, the all-in be-all. Just because he says something, all of a sudden it has to, it's going to take fruition. That don't mean you know what. Right. So I think that uh, I think Raiders fans need to go ahead and peel back a little bit and understand that there were 32 players picked in the first round of the draft on Thursday night. 
of those 32 players, you are going to have about maybe 18 of them that will actually perform at a level where the fan base is satisfied. You'll have about 14 that will play at such a level where the team won't even pick up their fifth-year option. That tells you right there exactly what level that first rounder is playing at. So once again, just because somebody is not on Mel Kuyper's big board or he wasn't highly rated on pro football focus, that doesn't mean that he's not going to turn out to be a good player. Well, obviously, we have no idea until these rookies put the pads on what kind of impact they're going to make. But if you're curious if the Raiders win total or Super Bowl chances improved after the draft, you should head to Bet Online. The fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. By the way, the Raiders' win total is seven and a half. Bet Online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website betonline.ag or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive 50% off your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Well, Stanford, I think we can agree on this. I think Trayvon Merrick was the best pick that the Raiders had in their draft class. I mean, he was a first-round talent. He slipped to the second round. Uh, most evaluators had him going. He was the number one prospect on most boards. Yes, he was. And at TCU, he played in a 4-2-5. So now he's going to make the transition to Gus Bradley's cover three scheme. Can you kind of explain the difference and how big of an adjustment is that going to be for the young man? I don't think it's going to be much of an adjustment at all. Whenever you run the 4-2-5, technically on paper, you have a weak safety, you have a free safety, and you have a strong safety. Well, usually that strong safety is just basically playing like an outside backer type of position where he's called a strong safety, but he's basically playing the role of an outside backer. So I don't really see that this being too big of a change simply because I think 6'1", 202, this guy's not going to be playing outside linebacker in the inside the box where he's going to be taking on pulling guards, things like that. He's going to He might be playing inside the box at a strong safety position, but I still look at it that he very well could be playing free safety. So I don't think that he's going to have to switch positions per se. And with him going from a 4-2-5 to a 4-3, that is more so used to identify certain positions for a novice, Dennis, a 4-2-5 is not that much different than a 4-3-4 defense. It really, really isn't. It just comes down to, do you want to have three safeties or do you want to have three linebackers? That's really all it is. It's just a way to go ahead and have that distinction, kind of like in basketball, how you may have a small forward and a power forward, where they're both forwards. <laughs> like, but you can go ahead and have that distinction easily. But nonetheless, I do not see that this being something that's going to be a huge change for him. I think he's going to be able to go ahead and fill in just fine. 6'1", 202, he's definitely not going to be playing outside linebacker. He's going to be playing safety. It's just a matter of whether it's free safety or strong safety. So do you think that allows them to move Jonathan Abram up into the box? He is clearly right now at this point of his career, Stanford, a better run defender than pass defender. I think we can all agree on that, right? And that's exactly why I think that this pick was made. Uh, taking a Trayvon Mulray 11 pick overall in the second round because it gives him the ability to move Jonathan Abram more inside the box. As you remember, several years ago, you saw how Mark Barron was drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers out of the University of Alabama. And guess what? 
he wasn't really a great fit at safety. Then he goes to the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm, I'm sorry, it was the Rams. And then he gets moved more to outside backer. So I think that that uh, that, that possibly is why you saw this pick being made by the Raiders in the second in the second round. So it gives them the freedom and the ability to move Jonathan Abram more inside the box. You've been out of the NFL, what, almost a decade? Is that right? Pretty close. Yes. Oh, my ever- God. When you say it like that, it makes me sound so old. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. How has defenses changed since you were last in the league? I think that defense has changed more so to try to combat this new spread offense. And when I say that, so much of what is started in high school and in college, it is now matriculating itself into the NFL. And, I, and that's because of the new age quarterback. You don't necessarily have the drop back passer, under center, play action fade, got to make sure that I can only read half the defense when I finally turn my back around. You're seeing the four and five wide, the bubble screens, the quick slant. You're seeing the Oklahomas of the world. You're seeing the Clemsons of the world. You're seeing these Texas Tech quarterbacks, Pat Mahomes, uh, number one. You're seeing so much of the spread offense. Well, now you got to have a, a defense implemented that can go ahead and combat that. So you're seeing a lot more zone coverages by defenses because you're not able to go ahead and just man up four or five guys across the field. You don't have that many cover guys. So you're having a lot of slot, a lot of slot nickel corners who are really coming up, making big plays in the league. You're having a lot of teams run a lot of zone coverage to go ahead and try to just slow down some of these high octane offenses. Like you see the Kansas city chiefs and other teams across the league. So it's different from that standpoint. And then also with the rules being geared toward offense where you can't even breathe on a receiver without them throwing the flag. And you can't even, I'm sorry, I I still don't even know how you sack the quarterback anymore because you can't hit him below the knees. Right. You can't hit him above the shoulder. Right. So you have to literally find his belly button. You got to find his navel and you got to aim at his navel. And then, and then also you can't drive him into the ground. So you got to go ahead. You got to wrap him up. Then you got to go ahead, you got to find a mattress, and then you got to set him down gently because if you go and you drive him into the ground, that's 15-yard penalty. If it's below the knees, 15-yard penalty. If it's above the shoulders, 15-yard penalty. Oh, yeah, uh, corner. If you even put a, a pinky on the receiver, that's a 15-yard penalty, first down. So the, the so many of the penalties, so many of the rules are now geared toward offense because fans want to see high-scoring game. They do not want to see a Super Bowl like you saw a couple years ago with the Los Angeles Rams and New England Patriots, 13-3. Fans don't want to see that. I want to see that, but fans don't want to see that. And you used to see the Darrell Revis, the Namdi Asamoah, the Champ Bailey, like the lockdown corners. You don't have that as much anymore. Stephon Gilmore still one of my favorites. Uh, you have uh, Jalen Ramsey for the Los Angeles Rams, good corner as well. But you don't really, really have as many man-to-man cover corners as you used to. You still got guys that are able to make play on the ball, make a lot of interceptions, make a lot of plays. X-Man out of Miami, Xavier Howard, really, really like watching him play. But you don't really see the man-to-man lockdown guys as much as you used to because a lot of teams are going more to zone than they are man. All right, you mentioned offense, and that leads me to the Raiders' first-round selection, and that was offensive tackle Alex Leatherwood. Uh, A lot of controversy with that pick. And before you and I break it down, here's what Raiders general manager Mike Mayock had to say about the pick. Well, I mean, when we made the pick, we had the TVs on, and and obviously uh, I I forget which group it was, but they were saying they could have had him in the second round and – you know, blah, blah, blah. So I understand that. The fan base is going to listen to that. The fan base is going to question it. 
Tom Cable, our offensive line coach. I, in all honesty, you'd have to ask Tom, but uh, this might have been Tom's favorite player in this entire class. I mean, Coach Cable has been all over him for months now, since the first time he saw the tape. Coach Gruden loved this guy. Our scouts love this guy. And what I like is when the second floor in our building, which is all the coaches, and the third floor, which is all the scouts, when we're united on a conversation like Leatherwood, that makes me feel really good about the pick. All right, Stanford, we heard Mike Mayock. He said he knew the pick might be controversial because a lot of people didn't have Leatherwood going that high. A lot of people didn't even have Leatherwood going in the first round. So what were your thoughts on the selection? I'm flabbergasted at why this pick is being maligned as much as it, as much as it is. Because when I'm looking right here at the Raiders draft picks, I'm looking and I see Alex Leatherwood. And this is on ESPN, by the way. You know, ESPN is obviously, they know everything. Right? They're never wrong about anything. And ESPN has him ranked number two at his position in the draft. So, Slater is already off the board. Right. Panay Sewell is already off the board. Right. Who the hell else are the Raiders supposed to take for a tackle? That, okay. like that, somebody has to go ahead and explain to me how definitively, not, not well, uh, this is what I read on Pro Football Focus, or this is what I read on Bleacher Report. Somebody needs to tell me definitively, this is the person the Raiders should have taken, and we know definitively, like we know Sunday comes after Saturday, Monday comes after Sunday, definitively he's going to be a better choice he's going to have a hall of fame career something like that i i i just don't get how everybody apparently is is john madden now everybody apparently is vince lombardi everybody apparently is bill belichick or the greatest uh the greatest front office executive ever where they definitively know you shouldn't have drafted this guy oh yeah uh but we're not really sure who you should have taken in their place even though Offensive tackle is a position that you had to address in the draft. Right, which they did. And like you mentioned a couple names, I thought they were going to either go with Oklahoma State's uh, Jenkins or Virginia Tech's Derisau. That's who I thought it was going to be. And I was surprised when I heard Leatherwood. I know he's an Outland Trophy winner from last year, best uh, offensive lineman in college football. I understand he played multiple positions at Alabama. He, he was just a name I think that we hadn't heard much of leading into the draft Stanford. Yeah. And then, so when you hear that name called, here's the reaction from Raider fans. Okay. And just bear with me. I'm going to go back to 2018. They took Colton Miller in the first round. Oh yeah. I remember. And, okay. Right. And everybody thought that was a little bit of a reach and he's turned out to be a very good player. Very solid, very solid left tackle. 2019, the Raiders had the fourth pick. They needed a pass rusher. They took Clee Farrell out of Clemson. Yep. Obviously that's been a little too high. He's a good run defender, but he has six sacks in two years. Mm -hmm. And then last year, they took Henry Ruggs with the 12th pick. I still like Ruggs. I think there were wide receivers who were more polished coming in with like Jerry Judy, perhaps Jefferson with the Vikings. Um, and then they took Damon Arnett with, it, with the Cowboys. By there the you go. Yes, yeah, C.D. Lamb with the Cowboys. And so I feel like the Raiders are drafting for their needs, but a lot of these guys they're reaching for. And I think a lot of the fans were reactions like, oh, my gosh. Here we go again. Yes, we draft for a needed position, which was the offensive line. But could we have got this guy maybe later and got somebody else to address a different need? Because I saw after, on Twitter, there was a lot on Twitter like, okay, 
after the Raiders made Leatherwood their first pick and then Merrick was their second round pick. Do you feel better, Raider Nation? But just because they took Leatherwood and somebody said, what if they flip-flopped him? You know, what if Merrick was their first pick and then Leatherwood was their second pick? Well, I think that's a little too hypothetical because you don't know who would have been there in the second round. You know what I'm saying? So it completely changes the draft. So I just think with the Raiders' lack of success and the way their recent draft choices have performed, the light goes on. Oh, my God, here we go again. Fair? Yes, I get that, and that is fair. I will say this. I remember back in 2011, I remember you had Nick Fairley out of Auburn. Yeah. Really, really good yes. defensive tackle. I know you know who I'm talking about. Yep. And I live in Texas. A lot of Texans fans were expecting to draft Nick Fairley. Instead, they drafted some guy out of Wisconsin. I think his last name is Watt. <laughs> and he was actually booed. He was booed when they drafted him because Texans fans wanted Nick Fairley. Now, I'm not really sure how that guy Watt's career turned out to be. I'm really not sure. Maybe you could help me out, Dennis. But that's why at the end of the day, like fans, I get it. But fans watch the game. And they watch what ESPN tells them to watch. They watch who ESPN tells them to look for in the draft. But fans don't know the game. They watch the game, no doubt about it. They know the names. But fans don't really know the game because they're being told what to know from ESPN, Bleacher Report, NBC, you know, everything. So that's why it's so frustrating to hear how fans so argumentatively and defiantly and emphatically can say, I know that he wasn't supposed to be drafted that spot because he's a reach. Okay, well, I'll put up another uh, another scenario. The Reds are drafting 17. Let's say Leatherwood. Let's say he's more of like a pick number 33, pick number 34 type of guy, early second round. Maybe let's say pick number 35, whatever. But if you're not picking early second round, you have to take him right there at 17. You have to. So that's what a lot of fans also have to remember is that it doesn't work like, well, you know, he's supposed to be taken at this pick right here, so we can't take him where we're drafting. Okay, so then what do you do? Because he won't be there when you come back around again for the 11th pick of the second round, so you've got to take him at pick number 17. You have to, unless you want to trade down to pick number 32, 33, 34, 35. But what if you don't find a trade partner? So you got to take him right there. I mean – there's plenty of other players in this draft that, that, that were reaches, in my opinion. We can go ahead and get, on, get, get into that another day. So I think that because of the Mel Kuypers of the world, because of the Todd McShays, who are very good at their job, by the way, the, the pro football focuses, people like that, fans get so fixated on, well, he's supposed to go number 12 because that's what I saw the other day when I was reading the magazine, and the fact that he was taking the number five, yeah, that was too high. Well, there's also a logic behind it, and there's also an ideology behind it. So, once again, if Alex Leatherwood is supposed to be going in the early second round, but you don't have a trade partner, and you don't pick until the mid part of the second round, you might as well just go ahead and take him right now because you can ensure that you're going to get him, not wait till your pick comes up in the second round, biting your fingernails, thinking, oh, man, I really hope he falls. I really hope he falls. I really hope he falls. 
you might as well just go ahead and take him because he's right there in front of you right now. That's what fans have to understand about the draft. You don't just, it's not perfect. It's not a utopia where you can just sit and wait whenever uh, whenever a certain player comes up and think that he's going to be available. If he's there right now, you better take him right now. All right, before we move on with the rest of the draft, let me get a sponsorship read in here. It's time to make your outdoor experiences better with Canaan. Canaan sunglasses are made exclusively with polarized lenses for optimal clarity. They're made with Japanese optics that make their lenses clearer, lighter, stronger, and Italian handcrafted frames that are impossible to scratch. Use the exclusive code CANANCAST15 at Canaan.com to receive 15% off your first pair. That's CANANCAST15. Canaan, clearly better. All right, Stanford, I want to focus now on the third round picks. And we've got Malcolm Coons, a defensive end out of Buffalo. Kind of like the same thing. I'm not really that familiar with him. I didn't see Buffalo uh, play a lot. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie to you. The last, uh, <laughs> the last grade uh, player I remember out of Buffalo, I think, was somebody named Khalil Mack. Who? Man, whatever happened to that guy? <laughs> like it's like he just kind of disappeared like a couple years ago. Like what? Did he retire or something? Oh, he's, play, he's hey. playing in Chicago. He's in Chicago. You know, he kind of. <laughs> Uh, but I want to ask you a little bit more about Divine Diablo. Now, he played safety at Virginia Tech, but when they introduced him, they called him a linebacker. So kind of two things. I know that in high school and college, 99.9% .9 of the time, you were the best player on the field. But then when you get to the NFL, it's a whole new ball game. So yeah. not only does Diablo have to learn the NFL game, he also has to learn another position. I mean, how tough of a road does this young man have ahead of him? Oh, it definitely can be a tough road depending on what position you're switching to. And I think for Diablo, in his situation, he's 6'3", 226. So that's perfect linebacker size, perfect linebacker build. So depending on how Gus Bradley uses him, if they move him to an outside backer, that'll be kind of almost reminiscent of what he was doing for Virginia Tech playing in the box, playing a strong safety position, almost kind of like that Cam Chancellor role for the Seattle Seahawks Legion of Boom. So depending on what position you're switching to and also the level of responsibility and your technique at the old position that you're coming from, it sometimes is not going to be as large of a steep learning curve as it would be for other positions. So it really just comes down to certain positions, the intricacies of it, the responsibility, the technique. I think in this situation, I think he'll be able to pick it up because he's going to be playing outside backer, which means even though he's 6'3", he's 226, so he, have, he has the body to go ahead and play in there. Now, he can go ahead, he can match up with tight ends, he can go ahead, cover backs out the backfield, still go ahead, stick his nose in there, take on a pulling guard, things like that, a fullback, something like that. So I think that in this situation, because he has the body type, and playing strong safety at B Tech, I think that it's going to be a smoother. Doesn't mean it's going to be smooth. It's going to be a smoother transition. Whereas if you're having somebody go from playing outside linebacker standing up to playing a four-three defensive end with their hand in the dirt, something like that. And then the next two picks were also in the secondary: Tyree Gillespie and then Nate Hobbs, cornerback out of Illinois. Stanford, let me ask you this. Let me begin here. 
how big is the difference between a college quarterback and an NFL quarterback? A college quarterback and an NFL quarterback? Yeah, I mean, like, how soon did you notice, oh, my God, this is night and day? Oh, my goodness, it is (laughs) night and day from the very first practice, simply because that NFL quarterback is able to put that ball on a rope, he's able to put it on a dime, and he's able to do it over, 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 and over, and over, and over again. That is probably the number one thing that you notice right off the rip at the very first minicamp. But you can also tell an NFL quarterback even in college. I remember there were certain games that we played uh, sophomore, junior year, back when I was in my days in University of Houston. And you can tell an NFL quarterback in college because the ball comes off of his arm just different. It has a different level of velocity, that speed and direction for all you people out there. Uh, And it whistles by your ear hole, like an Aaron Rodgers. Like when his ball is going through the air, like it whistles because it just has that much velocity. So it's definitely a, a difference that you notice right away. So, yes, yeah, so as a corner coming into this league, it is something that if you did not play against many NFL-bound quarterbacks in college, yes, it definitely is a huge shock to you when you first get there because in college where you're able to go ahead and close on a certain play where your receiver runs a comeback, and you're able to get out of your break, and you know that you have a certain amount of time, based on your days in college, you have a certain amount of time to go ahead and get back to your receiver so you can break the pass up. But when you get to the NFL, that ball is moving at a much faster rate. So what you usually think is your allotted time of being able to close on the play, it gets sped up because that quarterback, that ball is getting there even faster. So the plays that you were able to make in college as far as closing closing on a pass play, being able to break it up, you're not able to go ahead and close on it as quickly in the NFL because not because you're getting slower. It's just that, that ball is moving faster. How big of a learning curve do these young men face? A huge one. Uh, no matter what, I don't care if you're J.C. Horn. I don't care if you're Patrick Sertain going number eight, number nine to the Broncos and the Patriots. Uh, I'm sorry, the, Bronco, the Broncos and the Panthers, respectively. You're going to have a learning curve because, once again, like I said, in college, You're going against good teams, obviously, in the SEC, the Big Ten, Pac-12, the Big 12, things like that. But you're not necessarily going against an NFL-bound quarterback every week. You're not going against a Trevor Lawrence every week. You're not going against a Trey Lance every week, a Justin Fields, a Mac Jones. You're not going against those types of guys every week. But guess what? When you get to the NFL, every Sunday you're playing against an NFL quarterback. Now, you may not be playing against Tom Brady every week, maybe not Aaron Rodgers every week, but you're playing against an NFL quarterback every week, and that's where you will notice the difference. The speed of the game is faster. You will have receivers that can't run any faster than a 4-5, even on a good day, but it seems like they will always be a step faster than you in certain pass routes or certain situations because even though they may not be as fast if y'all were to run in a 40, they know how to use their speed. They're crafty. They know how to get in and out of their breaks, things like that. So all of that, in a nutshell, is something that you're going to have to go ahead and be able to assimilate. And you're going to have to be able to go ahead and process all in nanoseconds as a corner in any scheme, whether it's zone-based, whether it's man-based, things like that. Oh, yeah. And then once you finally are able to find out what the receiver's doing, match his plant step, break uh, play, uh, uh, step for step, then guess what? You got to now make a play on the ball because the quarterback is still firing it in there. And now you got to go ahead and you got to complete the second phase of the play. So it definitely is going to be a steep learning curve for anybody who is going from the 
college football game to the NFL at any position, but especially a cornerback because the most valuable position on the field, we all know, is the quarterback. And then you see that's why receivers go high because in today's game, it is all about the person who throws the ball, the person who catches the ball, the person who can pressure the guy who's throwing the ball, and then the guy who can stop the person who's throwing the ball to the person who can catch the ball. So, yes, at the cornerback position, it is one of the marquee positions in the NFL. So anybody going from the college game to the NFL game, it definitely is going to be a new situation, and it's going to take some time for them to go ahead and get up to speed. What was your welcome to the NFL moment? Oh, wow. Uh, my welcome to the NFL moment. It was, I, I got a couple, but I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll go ahead and just give you two. Okay. My first one was on the field. And it was simply growing up, I remember my freshman year of high school. I'm watching, it's 1997, 1998. I'm watching the, uh, the Minnesota Vikings. They go 15-1. Oh, sure. They got this guy, Randy Moss, who is just jumping out of the gym, uh, gets everybody, is a rookie. Right. I think he's second in the league in receiving yards as a rookie, just stud. Plays the Dallas Cowboys on Thanksgiving, has three catches, three touchdowns, and like 150 yards receiving, and he's playing with people. And like he's, I didn't mean to interrupt. It was a Randy though, like a 15th pick. Remember that? I mean, that's a prime he, example. He was you know the what? he was the 21st pick. I believe, oh my goodness! Because the Cowboys passed on him because of certain uh, certain rumors about his right. character. Right. You know, apparently he's apparently he's a criminal, but you know, just never went to jail. Apparently even though nobody could ever name one thing that he did. Right. But anyways, I digress. So I'm watching this guy and I'm just thinking to myself, like, oh my God, this guy is so, he's so cool. He's so good. He's 6'4". He runs a 4'240". Like he seemingly, like there's no way to stop him. And then what do you know? I get drafted by the Oakland Raiders. And the very first minicamp, I am lined up on Randy Moss. <laughs> <laughs> What's going through your head at that point? And I'm just like, Wow. The same person that I've looked up to so highly and also think that is unstoppable, I now got to line up against and find a way to stop him. So the biggest thing for, uh, for a lot of players is you have to get over that awe moment of certain players because you're like, man, I played with him on the game or I played against him on the game, like Madden, Madden 98 or Madden 99 or whatever. And then now you're lined up. Like, literally, face-to-face. -face. Like, not eye-to-eye, because, -eye, you know, Moss is 6'4", I'm 6'1". But that was definitely a hello rookie moment. Uh, I'd say the other one was... Wait, before we get to... Did he talk trash to you at all? Did he say anything to you? I mean... When, oh, he ain't talking trash to me. He's over. He's like, man, I ain't got to worry about this little rookie. Like, he, <laughs> he might go ahead and pee, his, pee in his pants. Like, I ain't worried about him. <laughs> now, luckily, we were in zone cover, so I didn't have to actually, like, man up on it. But no, but Moss, he... Uh, Moss will talk a little bit. Uh, he didn't talk to me, but he would talk to a little bit to other players like him and C. Wood. Uh, they would go at it and practice from time to time. But uh, but like I said, I, I loved it because that, I think, made me a better player because uh, if you can go ahead and I would, there were times I'd go against Moss after practice, working on just release techniques, things like that. And whenever you have a stud Hall of Fame player that you can go ahead and practice against, it makes you better simply because you you feel more confident going against anybody else in the league come Sunday afternoon. The second instant was probably Warren Sapp. I remember I was right there at the front desk with uh, Nick Beach. He was like he he worked the front desk of uh, of our old facility out there in in Alameda, 
And I remember Sap came in and I think he was on the phone just talking to somebody. And like I said, I'm 21 years old. I, I still remember them winning the Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and that star-studded defense that he was on, Derrick Brooks and Rondé Barber and John Lynch and there's so many to name. And he just walks in so cool. He's on his phone uh, yelling and screaming at somebody. I'm just like, oh, my God, that's Warren Sapp. Like, so there's so many, oh, my God, that's so-and-so. That's so-and-so. And, like, there's so many of those moments right there that you're just in awe of people that you used to see on the TV screen, and now you're literally five feet away from them in the locker room. And then also, obviously, Charles Woodson, one of the best to ever do it as well. When he first walked into the building, it's kind of like the heavens opened up <laughs> because it's so many people that you look up to in high school and in college. That, oh, my God, he's a stud player, Michigan, Heisman Trophy winner, played offense, defense, special team. Uh, Charles Woodson went to the uh, Pro Bowl as a rookie, went to the Pro Bowl his first four years in the league. So then all of a sudden, you're now literally like breathing the same air as them. So you're just there's a there's a moment where you're like, oh, my God. I really kind of can't even believe I'm here. But as a rookie, it's something you got to snap out of real quickly because while you're having those all moments, you don't want to let those moments turn into negative ones where now you're not taking care of what you got to take care of on the field, where you're out there getting beat in practice, things like that. Now all of a sudden the coach didn't have as much confidence in you. So it's definitely something that you want to make sure that, yes, everybody's going to have their all moments. But also remember this, they're in the NFL for a reason because they're great football players. You're in the NFL for a reason also, the same reason. So you gotta also have that in your mind that yes, they may have the name, they may have all the plays, the ESPN highlights, things like that, but you're not just here because you're a good person or you have good character. You're here because you're a player also. You have to always remind yourself of that. All right, final question for the podcast. Which receiver talked the most trash that you played against? Oh, wow. The receiver that talked the most trash. I would probably have to say Brandon Stokely. Really? Brandon yeah, Stokely? I, I would probably have to say. Uh, was he playing with the Ravens at that time? or No, the, the Broncos. Um, I would probably have to say Brandon Stokely or. Okay, you got to um, give me some examples of what. Oh, no. Oh, no I'll give you some examples. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Uh, Brandon Stokely. Steve Smith, I uh, played against him a couple times. He didn't really talk much to me, but I've heard he talks a lot, and I mean, everybody knows that. Right. Um, but I would say, if to me personally, I would probably say Brandon Stokely and uh, Dwayne Bowe, one of my good friends. Sure. Uh, me and him used to go at it uh, several times, just like just you, but it was it's more friendly banter. Uh, because, like I said, we knew each other and developed a relationship throughout our years playing Oakland versus Kansas City. But I'd probably say Brandon Stokely, probably. I remember I was in my second year, and he played in the slot. So here I am lined up against him a lot uh, playing nickelback. And I remember it was maybe, I think it was my third year, 2007. Jay Cutler was the quarterback. And pretty much on third down, uh, Stokely and Cutler had a pretty good connection where it would pretty much just simply be Stokely get open. So if it was third and seven, Stokely would simply run to the sticks and he would turn around. So if I'm playing inside leverage, he would break out. If I'm playing outside leverage, he would break in. And it was pretty much just Stokely get open was his, that was his pass route 
on that third down. And I remember there was one time. There was one time, man. And uh, I forget. I think he may have caught a pass over the middle. And he said, he said, man, I'm killing you today. (laughs) (laughs) And and, oh, my God. Like that, it it pained me to him. uh, It pained me to hear him say that. I think he may have caught maybe about three passes on me all day. But they were like in big moments. Or they were moments where they really needed this first down. Things like that. Uh, so, yeah, I remember that. But like I said, once I got older, once I got more acclimated to the slot position, then I started really being able to go ahead and get after him because I understood what was about to happen. But, you know, like I said, that's all in good fun. Sure. Uh, Broncos, Raiders, that's a huge rivalry. It's been that way for I don't even know how many years. And then even after I stopped playing, I actually bumped into Stokely one time at uh in a in a in the NFL broadcasting boot camp. And like so like we shared like several laughs just over those battles that me and him had. But yeah, I would probably say that uh he's kind of, yeah, he's a talker. Uh, or at least or at least he was to me. Maybe he was to anybody else. Almost but kind of like that Larry Bird type of talker. Oh not yeah. Unless where unless you're the one he's talking to, unless you literally have him mic'd up, nobody else ever hears it. And if you go and you tell somebody, they'll be like, no, he didn't say that to you. So, uh, so yeah, Brandon Stokely, definitely uh, one of the toughest covers in the slot, no matter what, that I've had to go against. But also definitely somebody that uh, that talked a fair amount of trash to me. <laughs> Good stuff. Who knew Brandon Stokely? <laughs> yeah. All right, Raider Nation, that's going to do it for another edition of the Believe in Raiders podcast presented by betonline.ag. For my partner, Stanford Rout, I'm Dennis Ackerman. Thanks so much for listening, and may all your punts find the coffin corner. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.